Well, as you can tell, our, our time together this morning is uh, going to be, of course, based on the Word of God, but uh, more particularly, uh, the words of God in, in Psalm 119, verses 81 and 82, that speaks of difficulty, trial, uh, things that we have discussed quite often here as we've gone through Psalm 119. There are things that, uh, many things I should say, in all of our lives that can get us down, that get us discouraged, get us even to the point of depression, maybe despair. Uh, as human race, we experience these things. This, this is not uncommon. Things that bring on these kind of feelings are things like failing marriages, failing children, failing health, either your own or uh, someone you love, failing finances, failing relationships, failing politics, failing churches, failing spiritual life. All these kind of things can bring on discouragement, despair really. So how should we respond to these kinds of failures that we face? Is there any hope? for these kind of circumstances that we find ourselves in. Real, authentic hope seems to be something that's hard to come by these days, especially when times are dark. The church, well, I should say scripture in the church acknowledges these things. It says in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you don't have hope, it affects your entire outlook. It makes you feel sick. It makes you sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So where can we find Hope that actually helps, actually sustains through life's deep, difficult challenges. Some philosophers tell us that hope, any hope that we have, might be based on fantasy. And the only way to experience hope that we discuss in to church is, is simply to ignore reality. I mean, we have people out there saying these kind of things to us. If, is this true? Is it true that, that our hope is based on fantasy? I, I hope not. Uh, if, if it is, we have good reason to be despairing, right? So is our Christian hope, the hope that we read of in the Bible, a construction of our imagination or is it real? Are we playing a game or does God actually meet us in our dark times? Well, the passage in focus today gives us a great springboard into the rest of Scripture that delivers a different assessment than that of despair and hopelessness. So if you have your Bible open to Psalm 119, I'm going to read verses 81 and 82, and from there discuss this very important topic. Psalm 119, 81 and 82 say, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Now, these verses assume that there is hope for difficult circumstances. These verses are cries to God from a discouraged individual who has grown to expect God to show up. And it doesn't seem it's happening currently for this writer. These verses don't ignore difficult circumstances. They don't pretend that there's not difficult things we face. These verses look through those difficult circumstances to a real God on the other side. Taking these verses as a platform from, from which to think about this important subject, I want to show you from Scripture things that can impede our hope and things that can actually build up our hope. So let's first look at things that might impede hope. The impediments of hope. 
Now I want to add right up front that when hope is impeded, our joy is affected. Our joy takes a hit. If hope is absent, joy is lost. Hope and joy go together. So what the Bible has to say about this subject is very important for the health of your joy. If you lack joy, this might be an important sermon to listen to. If you're going through difficult times that are affecting your joy, this might be a good important sermon to listen to. So there are two things that get in the way of hope, maybe more, but two that stand out in Scripture. And that is ongoing trouble. That's what we read right here in these two verses. This guy has an unending source of trouble, it seems. Uh, trouble impedes hope, and ongoing trouble wearies the soul, wears us out. The ESV translates this verse, as I read to you earlier, with the word long. The soul longs for your salvation. My eyes long for your promise. But the New Living Translation translates it this way. My soul is worn out, waiting for your salvation. This guy's soul is absolutely at the bottom. He's worn out. The NIV translates it like this. My soul faints with longing. I'm not ready to pass out, is what's being said here. This author is tired. He's completely worn out. His hope is draining like sand between his fingers. The trouble we see in this stanza would be enough to suggest this is what's going on in this guy's life. But the 80 verses prior to this also affirm the struggles he's going through. It's a long list of troubling issues that we've read so far in this great chapter. And so we understand his hopelessness, at least intellectually. Some of you practically. So what is it that brings on trouble and ongoing trouble? Well, what does the Bible say about this? We reread in Scripture that we have an enemy called Satan, the devil. Uh, he would have us fail, right? This is his objective. He wants you to fail spiritually. He wants you to be discouraged, even to the point of despair. And sometimes he gets his way. Think of the stories of Job, for example. Think of the story of Peter, where Satan actually sifted Peter, put Peter through the mill. And then we come to passages like Ephesians 6 that warn us about the impending spiritual battle that we'll face and gives us resources to fight such battles. And so we've, we see that the Bible describes trouble coming from Satan. Another source of trouble in the life of a believer is people. Yeah, people. And we have an unending supply of trouble with people in our lives. People around us bring on all sorts of difficulty often. It happens at work, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in traffic, even at coffee shops. We, we seem to run into trouble without even trying. Our selfishness causes us to try to defend our rights or fight for our rights. And these, of course, conflict with the next guy's rights who are sitting next to you. You know, everybody around us, I've heard it said that if it weren't for people, we'd have a great church. You ever heard that? Well, with people comes trouble. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. No matter where you go, there's people. You know, you think, in fact, I talked to somebody on Friday who's going to go on this camping trip with the church, and they were debating whether or not to go because people would be there. And I said, okay, well, it's not camping if people are there, he said. Well, 
people cause trouble just being there, right? Wherever you go, who shows up? You do. You're there. And so this causes trouble for us. And then thirdly, the third source of trouble in our lives, the Bible teaches, is a bit counterintuitive, especially to the Christian, but it's God. Yes, you heard me right. God is the source of much of our trouble. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. I thought God was for us. I thought God wanted to help us when we encounter trouble. Well, we believe that the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God over all things, including our specific circumstances. Numerous places in Scripture, like Isaiah 46, Amos 3, Psalm 50, etc., etc., and there are many more, describes God's personal involvement in our circumstances, both good and bad. Even in this psalm that we're studying, Psalm 119, look at verse 75. It's just a little bit back. It says this, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So at least some of our afflictions, some of our trouble can be traced back to God and his oversight of our lives. God has done it. God is behind the trouble we experience. Even trouble that comes from Satan, as in Job's case, and from people, as in David's case. God is behind these things. We read that God oversaw the events of Job's life when Satan was allowed to cause him much trouble, even to the point of taking the lives of his children. God was in control of the exact day of Hezekiah's death, as he is in control of the exact day of your death. And he was in charge and overseeing Jonah becoming a snack for a whale. He oversaw that. In fact, he planned it. He also actually governed the specific affairs of the Exodus when the people of God left Egypt and all the horrific things that was taking place at that time. God was overseeing those things. God was in charge of those things. So if these things are true, then God is involved in those things that trouble us. He is involved in the circumstances of our lives that cause us distress, pain, anguish, sorrow. And this particular subject is exhaustive, and it includes the sovereignty of God and our personal responsibility for sin and its consequences. But in God's wisdom, he weaves together all these things, a tapestry for his glory and our good, in ways that we can't understand. So why does God bring affliction upon us, trouble into our lives? You would think that if he's our God, he would protect us. You think if he were our God, he would keep us from this sadness, this sorrow. What is up, God? You're making me sorry. You're making me sad. You're making me despair. So why does God do this? I have a couple reasons for you from Scripture. Uh, to try our faith, to strengthen our faith. You really don't have any clue how strong your faith is until you get into the dark times. You can claim all sorts of things when everything's cheery. Wait until things tighten up a bit. Then we'll discover the depth of your faith. And so God takes us to places that reveal to us, not to him, he knows where our faith is, but reveal to us where our faith is. Reveals to us the depth, the strength of our faith. 
Listen to Job's response to God's work in his life and circumstances. Job 13, 15, though he slay me. Who slay me? God. Even if God slays me, I will hope in him. That reveals a little bit of Job's character and, and faith, doesn't it? How about Psalm 23, 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. How did I get here? I'm following you, God, and you lead me to the valley of the shadow of death? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me there in that valley. And then you remember John 6. Jesus had a big crowd in front of him. You know, some estimate 20 to 25,000 people. And he says this, lifting up the eyes then and seeing the large crowd that was coming to him, Jesus said, Philip, this is one of his disciples, where are we going to buy bread enough to feed all these people? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He wanted to see what Philip thought. He wants to know how you'll respond. He already knows, but he wants you to know how you'll respond. So why does God bring affliction, trouble into our lives? One, to try to strengthen our faith. Secondly, to develop our pursuit of God. If you're never in difficult circumstances, you're going to be content with yourself in those places. But the minute you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, what happens? If you know Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit. You're immediately drawn into a deeper spot with him, aren't you? In Luke 18, 1, Jesus said that we ought always to pray and not lose heart under difficult circumstances. These things that God places in these, these, the valley of the shadow of death where we find ourselves sometimes were put there so that we will develop a pursuit, a heart, a longing for God that doesn't come in sunny places. In Luke 11, you remember Jesus told a story about a man who showed up at his friend's house at midnight to ask for bread. And his friend says, go away, I'm in bed with my family, go away, come back tomorrow. The guy kept pounding, I want some bread now, I'm hungry now. And it wasn't because he was his friend, Jesus said, that he went and opened the door. It's because he kept pounding that he opened the door to develop a pursuit of God. The man was hungry. And so he kept pounding, even at midnight. You remember the blind man in Matthew chapter 20, verse 31, sitting on the road, side of the road. Jesus was passing by. Everybody's praising Jesus and, you know, singing his, his awesome works and all these things. And this blind man on the side of the road heard the commotion. He asked somebody, what's going on? He says, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Do you remember what the blind man did? Even though they told him to shut up, he got up and screamed. What we read here in 2031, that he called out all the more. He couldn't be kept quiet. In his need, his blindness, he knew there was one that could help him. So he called out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And even in this psalm, Psalm 119, verse 67, verse 71, we see this is the purpose behind the trouble we're in. 
God, God brings us into the place of trouble to develop our pursuit of Him. Something you and I don't do naturally. Thirdly, God brings us into troubling places to remind us of our weakness and our need. You're pretty self-confident as long as everything's going well, right? As long as you have an income, as long as you're paying your bills, as long as your wife behaves, as long as everything else is going on right, you're all happy. Right? But then darkness comes. Difficulty comes. And all of a sudden you realize you don't have the world by the tail. The only work that God does with prideful people is to break their pride. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.9? Paul, the man with all these gifts, he said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He was in such despair, he felt that God had sentenced him to death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This guy who had everything going for him. The Apostle Paul who, who saw visions of God, who heard God speak, who saw Christ, who had every reason to be self-confident, self-reliant. God took him to a dark place to remind him of his need. Friends, when we are self-confident and self-reliant, our tendency is to drift away from God. And God desires us to be dependent on Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to need Him, to want Him. This is why God brings difficulty and trials into your life. And then finally, according to Scripture, God brings trials our way, difficulties our way, despair our way even, to bring glory to God. Glory to God. Your trials, your suffering, what you're going through, whatever that is, brings glory to God. How so? Well, what happens when you're in difficulty if you're a Christian? You run to Christ, right? You run to the Word. You, you look for hope in Christ and in His Word. This is God's intent. And when you run to God, it demonstrates you think that He's able to help. That brings him glory. Listen to how the psalmist said it in, in Psalm 50, verse 15. You call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you'll glorify me. That's how it works. You're going to get in trouble, you're going to come ask for my help, I'm going to give it, and you're going to give me praise. And that's exactly how it's going to work. That's what I want. You get help, I get glory. That's the way, that's the way God has designed it. So the things that... that cause us trouble that bring on despair and hopelessness is ongoing trouble. And that trouble comes from Satan, people, and strangely from God. That this also, this hope, hopelessness, this difficulty, trouble, comes from a silent God. And this may hit some of you right in the face. Some of your discouragement comes from silence. I think this can be and is one of the greatest struggles for people of faith. A silent God. 
And this silence of God has been a thing that's driven many superficial religious people away from him. Because walking by faith is different than walking by sight, and walking by faith isn't easy. When you're desperate for God's intervention and feel like there's no other option or hope, and then nothing but crickets, it can be discouraging. What are we to think in the midst of ongoing pain when God won't even answer? Why is God silent? He takes us to the valley of the shadow of death. He gets us into trouble. And then when we reach out to him, which is what he wants, it seems he doesn't reach back sometimes. Then what? Why, God, are you silent? I've got a couple answers for you from the Bible, if you're interested. First of all, and I think this is obvious, is his timing is not our timing. He even says it. My ways are not your ways. I do things on my own time, not yours. To us, a day seems like a thousand years. To God, a thousand years seems like a day. We have different program, different thought process. His timing is not our timing. Secondly, when God knows that our deliverance will result in further sin, he remains silent. If you are in trouble, and by the way, remember, trouble comes from people, and people we're part of people. If, if we're the cause of our trouble... And God relieves us of that trouble too soon, we may revert to deeper sin than what we were there for in the first place. God knows these things about us. God knows that sometimes deliverance will result in further sin. And he doesn't want that. <laughs> and so you remain in a, in a state of Despair and pursuit and longing and crying out, which in the scheme of the eternal perspective is infinitely better than more sin. Thirdly, reasons for God's silence, his timing is not our timing. God knows that deliverance will result in further sin. Thirdly, when prayer is sparse on our behalf. When you aren't praying, when you're not seeking God, when you're not crying out to him, you may cry out once and then, ah, that didn't work. That's not seeking God. That's sparse prayer. We're told in scripture that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Not the sparse prayer. Not the superficial prayer. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5. And then another reason for God's silence is God is in the process of forming and shaping and training his child towards Christ's likeness. There's actually things happening in that silence. All the things that I've already mentioned. He's training his child towards Christ's likeness. Getting them from here to there. 
You've heard me talk about my wisteria project in my backyard before. I've planted wisteria. I want to have a wisteria canopy over my backyard. And wisteria are a lot like us. They are rebellious. They do not want to go where you want them to go. I've built trellises. They know exactly what I want from them. I've communicated this clearly. I've watered them. I've put everything where it needs to be. All you got to do is grow on it. That's just like us, isn't it? We know exactly what God wants from us. He's built a trellis in our life for us to climb upon, grow upon the church, his word, the Holy Spirit's presence. We have the trellis, and yet we continue to shoot off and go our own way. Just like my wisteria vines. I'm going out there every day, ask Sherry, every day, and I tie another shoot down because it's doing this kind of thing. Tie it down to the, to the post, get wrapping that thing on the trellis. Stay here is my communication to the wisteria plant and God's communication to us. Stay here. Grow on this trellis. God is training us to be more like Christ. And sometimes that requires silence from him. You know, we cry out for God's help and deliverance only to be met with silence. That discourages us. Let me ask you a question that came to my mind this past week when I was studying for this today. If God responded to you as quickly as you respond to him and his calls on your life, how soon would he come to your rescue? If God responded to you as quickly as you respond to him and his calls on your life, how soon would he come to your rescue? And yet we get all worked up when he doesn't snap to it when we make a call. Right? The Psalms are full of pleas for God's help. Read them. You'll recognize you feel a lot like the psalmists. They cry out for God's help and many times are met with silence. And then they say, where are you, God? I've been waiting. And it seems like God is saying, wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. Many times these men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write his word, even them, they experienced the very things that you and I experience. Silence. And then in God's timing and his manner, he responds when he's ready. And actually, when you're ready. Think about the trouble that you're currently facing. You might not have to think too hard. It might be right in front of you. Think about the trouble that you're facing. Are you close to hopelessness? Do you have a troubling marriage? Troubling children? Troubling employers? Troubling relationship with God? Have you cried out for his help? Has he remained silent? The word in verse 81 and 82 of Psalm 119 is keep crying out, keep waiting. When hope is deferred, it not only makes the heart sick, 
with hopelessness, it creates a cynical spirit. And I want to warn you against that this morning. We have this culture in which we live. It's, it seems like a, a dominant attitude is cynicism. Cynicism, of course, chokes out hope. We become cynical about many things to protect ourselves from disappointment. And this is never more true when we're talking about hope in God. But it's also true when it comes to human relationships. We become cynical. God probably won't do this. God can't do this. God doesn't love me as much as he loves that guy or this gal. I, I don't really have a lot of hope, but we become cynical. Hoping that your marriage turns around, hoping that your children turn around, hoping that your vocation turns around, hoping that your spiritual life turns around makes you vulnerable. And cynicism guards against vulnerability. We don't want to be disappointed by broken promises or unmet hopes, so we get cynical. This needs to be warned against. It is uh, a great impediment to the hope that God brings. You know, you, you may not believe change can happen in your marriage or with your kids or any circumstances you find yourself in, but it can. Change can actually happen. There is actual hope, and it's not because of who we are, but because who God is. It's not that we have such great hope, it's that we have such hope in a great God. It makes the difference. You know, you may feel discouraged over some circumstance you're facing, but I want to help you see here now in my next point from Scripture that we have real life-changing hope available to us. Hope is the point of God's Word. You, you know that by now, right? That hope is the point of God's word. It was written to a hopeless race of people. It says this in Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where we all came from. Hopeless in this world. And then a couple verses later in Ephesians 3, 20, Paul says this, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is work within us. God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power that is work within us. What power is at work within us, Christian friend? God is at work within us, right? The Holy Spirit resides in the person who knows Christ. According to that power, God can do whatever he wants and is able to do whatever he wants in your life, in your circumstances, in your marriage, in the lives of your children, at work, even in your dry spiritual life. God can do something about that. Are you pleading? Are you waiting? So let's look at the advancement of hope. We see the impediment of hope all the things I've just mentioned. Now, let's look at the, the advancement of hope. We've all experienced those impediments, right? And our joy takes a hit all the time because of them. But let's, let's think a bit now, uh, the rest of our time together, about those things that build up our hope and as a result build up our joy. And I think all of us could use more joy. 
If you can't, you're welcome to leave at this point. The advancement of hope. Let's first look at the hope of salvation. Look at verse 81 again. My soul longs for your salvation. Longing for salvation. And then in verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. So, verse 82 is looking at the fulfillment of the promises that are found in Scripture. Found from God's Word. These things bring hope. They bring relief. They bring joy. The promises his eyes long for are the promises of salvation. God showing up. God doing something. God ending his silence. What kind of salvation is the psalmist thinking about here? We have a rough idea as Christians what the word salvation means. What did it mean to this guy? Well, there's four options. The first is this, temporal deliverance. Deliverance from these bad guys that are chasing him around, that are digging pits, hoping he'll fall in them. Temporal deliverance, the kind of deliverance that the people of Israel heard was coming in Exodus 14, 13. Remember, the Red Sea was in front of them. The world's most powerful army was behind them. Two mountains on either side. They weren't getting out. It was doomsday. Moses says this, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. That's temporal salvation. He's going to get you out of this bind kind of salvation. This is the kind of salvation that we seek from time to time when our circumstances get difficult. We want out. We want temporal salvation. Temporary, now, salvation. Secondly, another kind of salvation that could be in view is the arrival of Christ. Wasn't a primary hope of the Old Testament believer the Messiah? The arrival of Christ? Yeah. This was the primary focus. This was the primary hope of all the people of Israel in the Old Testament times, particularly the psalmists. The whole Old Testament was written around this grand hope. One day the Messiah would show up and make all things right. And then 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, about 1,500 years after this verse was penned, he shows up. The Messiah, the Christ. Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior who is the Messiah promised. So that's salvation, temporal deliverance, the arrival of Christ. Next is the benefits of a relationship with Christ, a relationship with this Messiah. Matthew one let let's hear of some of the benefits. Some of these things we take for granted as Christians in our day. But listen again, let this fall freshly on your ears. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This Messiah saves us from the consequences of sin. That's a pretty significant benefit, isn't it? And then Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's when Jesus showed up, who is loving, kind, and good, he saved us, not because of the work done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And then Hebrews 6, 9, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. These are benefits, friends, from this Messiah that came. Forgiveness of sin. 
hope in God, kindness from a, a loving Savior, goodness, and many more things, including the fourth type of salvation, eternal life. This is the fourth kind of salvation that is potentially in view here in Psalm 119, verse 81. Listen to the author of Hebrews describes it in 5.9. And being made perfect, he, that is, became, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There's another kind of salvation. It's eternal. It's forever life of bliss after we die. Now, the author of Psalm 119 only had one of these four to strengthen his soul, to encourage his hope. All he had was the hope of temporal salvation, maybe looking forward to the Messiah, but in terms of experiencing something personal, it was only one, temporal salvation. We have three of these four types of salvation confirmed and available to us today. We have temporal salvation, we have the arrival of Christ, we have the benefits of relationship with Christ. The only thing that we lack, of course, is eternal salvation. And for those of you who know the Gospel of John, Jesus said four times that we have it today. If you believe in me, you have eternal life, present tense, Jesus said. So in reality, we have all four of these kinds of salvation available to us. That's the hope of salvation. What greater hope do you want, friends? I mean, you may want to get out of your particular trouble that you're in right now. But what greater hope do you have than salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the washing in the blood of Christ, the eternal hope that you have? What else do you want? Nothing is the answer. Now let's, we've seen the hope of salvation. Now let's look at the salvation of hope. Because I think sometimes we, in our cynicism, try not to think about it because our circumstances are so difficult. We're really not used to God intervening. We're used to the silence of God, and it becomes kind of the default position for us. So let's look at the importance of saving hope. I think you know that hope is such a necessary element of the Christian life. In fact, it's one of the three great concepts the Apostle Paul identifies as being central. Remember, faith, hope, and love. We talked about these things. These make up what the Christian life is all about. Hope is one-third of what's most important to us. Have you given up on hope? You think, oh, God can't do anything? If he would have, he would have done it by now. Hope is that thing that keeps us going, friends, when we're in the midst of serious trouble. That hope for the believer is that God will do what he has promised to do, which is what the psalmist is longing for in verse 82. My eyes long for your promise. You've said you would do this, God. I'm not going to stop banging on the door until you get up and get me some bread. Is the idea behind verse 82. That hope for the believer is that God will do what he has promised. He will come through in his time he will accomplish his purposes that he has designed from before eternity. I think, Christian friends, Sun Valley friends, that we need to fight to preserve biblical hope in our minds. I think we're 
we too easily dismiss it and continue the game of Christianity, keep coming to church, but really not expecting God to do too much with my kids or with my spouse or with my circumstances. We need to revive biblical hope because there's a danger of placing your hope on simply getting out of trouble. By the way, temporal salvation, getting out of trouble, is not the primary focus of biblical hope. In fact, getting out of trouble become, can become an, Id an idol in the life of a Christian. The danger of placing your hope in getting out of trouble is a problem. Many times, because of our culture and our human weakness, we believe that discomfort is bad and must be avoided at all costs. This is a false notion. At least it's not a biblical notion. We read often in Scripture that God does his most important work in the times of trouble. Not on the mountaintop experiences, but in the dark valleys of death is where God does his most important work in our lives. Almost every biblical character that you can think of would vouch for this. Think of anyone who comes to mind right now. David, Daniel, Joseph, Paul. Would any of them say, God did his best work in me when I was really doing great? No. They would all, without fail, say, God did his best work in me when the times were the darkest. Almost every biblical character would vouch for this. If we are always trying to avoid or get out of trouble, we may sacrifice the refining work of God that he intends to accomplish in the storms that we face. And the ways we try to avoid this trouble or to get out of trouble is by compromising with the world. There's trouble that we face that we could get out of if we're willing to do business with the world. We all know this. We can avoid a lot of trouble if we'll keep our biblical opinions to ourselves. We can compromise with the world to take advantage of others or take advantage of circumstances. It might even be just a small compromise that's in view that we could even argue that many, even in the church, make. Well, so-and-so did it, and he's a deacon. Right? We compromise with the world to avoid or get out of trouble. We manipulate circumstances to avoid or get out of trouble. Isaiah 28, 16 says that whoever believes will not be in haste. Do you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Then something you ought to consider is that the Bible says you should not be in haste. But we live in a hasteful culture, don't we? Some call it a microwave culture. This is a culture that's grown up seeing significant issues solved in a 30-minute TV show. There's a massive problem, and 30 minutes later, everybody's happy and having a picnic. Do you remember Saul's ordeal in 1 Samuel 13? He was facing a strong Philistine army and had been told by God and the priest Samuel to wait for Samuel to arrive to sacrifice the Lord and receive his blessing, his direction for the battle. But Saul got nervous, Saul got anxious, made a sacrifice himself, which was against God's law. 
And as soon as he had made the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and said, What have you done? Because you didn't trust God, because you didn't wait for his timing, Saul, your kingdom has been stripped away from you today, is what Samuel said. He didn't trust. Saul didn't wait. He got anxious in his discomfort and tried to manipulate the circumstances. And this cost Saul everything. Everything. If our troubles aren't resolved within a day or two, we get anxious. We start manipulating our circumstances to get comfortable place. Many times that short circuits what God intentions in our life with trouble. As people who believe that God is working in us and around us to recast the image of Christ in us, that kind of activity, manipulation, uh, compromise is counterproductive. So we have the salvation of hope. We need to reconsider biblical hope and recognize the danger of, of idolizing troublelessness. Let me tell you something, friends. Trouble is your ally in the Christian life. Trouble is your ally. It's not an enemy. Let's look at the blessing. Let's conclude with this. The blessing of hoping in God. Of course, this hope is based on God's word. This is what 81 and 82 say. This is what Psalm 119 says in every single verse but four. Your hope is in God's word. Not in your wisdom, not in your smarts, not in your money, not in your manipulation, not in your troubleless life, not in your easygoing life. Your hope is in God's word, in God of the word. Not on worldly things, not on getting out of trouble. Many times hope is experienced only by opening the eye of faith and closing the eye of sight. Let me say that again. Many times, true, lasting hope is experienced only by opening the eye of faith and closing the eye of sight. The blessing of biblical hope comes by faith only and not by sight. The reason that we must close the eye of sight is because many times our circumstances that we can see discourage us, discourage us, and focusing on them keeps us from seeing the circumstances as God sees them. Our circumstances can bring on fear, but biblical hope sees the sunshine behind the black stormy cloud. What you heard read this morning. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha's friend couldn't see the reality of the circumstances because he was focusing on Syria's army. Look how big and bad these guys are. And Elisha praised God, open his eyes of faith so he could see the reality. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen with the physical eye, but to the things that are unseen, those things that we can only perceive by faith, God's activity in the program. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're going away. But the things that are unseen are eternal, they'll last forever. Friends, we have a compassionate God, a loving God, who is in control of our circumstances, especially the uncomfortable ones. 
When our trouble is with difficult people, we must believe that God is overseeing their involvement in our lives. As David understood when his son Absalom was chasing him around and threatening his life, David acknowledged that God had sent him. We must practice trusting God and not taking extraordinary measures to relieve ourselves of discomfort. Just keep being obedient. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep doing the one another's. Keep obeying. Let God take care of whatever it is that you're going through. Since God is perfect in all respects, we must believe that the timing of his salvation from our circumstances will come at the best possible time in the best possible way. Psalm 62.1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. I would like you to read sometime in the next 24 hours that song we sang earlier. Read the lyrics. The Lord is my salvation. It is exactly what these words are talking about in Psalm 119, verses 81 and 82. Spot on. Now we're going to sing another song that reminds us of the Lord being our salvation. Pray with me. Lord, we do ask for your work in our lives. We, we don't want to short circuit what you're doing. We get impatient with our sorrow and discomfort. Uh, oversee these things, overrule our, our impulses to get out. God, help us to rest in your salvation, not the salvation the world offers, not the salvation that we can come up with ourselves, but the salvation that is from you, our God and Savior who loves us, who is compassionate and good. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.